Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 92. Psalm 92. As you know, in the last, the last few months, we have been considering these selected psalms. And many of these psalms are psalms that we have been singing together in our corporate worship services. And so we have had the privilege of not only considering an exposition of these psalms, but also singing these psalms as a form of doxology to our Lord. And so this morning we are going to turn our attention to Psalm 92. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish All evildoers shall be scattered, but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, did you notice the title of this psalm? The title of this psalm says, A Psalm, A Song for the Sabbath. This is the only psalm in the Psalter that refers explicitly to the Sabbath. Now, when the Sabbath comes up, generally speaking, there are many questions that begin to percolate. Questions such as, is the Sabbath still applicable or binding for us today. And if it is, then what day is the Sabbath uh, to be observed? Is it on Sunday, Saturday, or any day in which we choose? And furthermore, what can or can't we do on the Sabbath day? Now, these are good questions, important questions, questions that this psalm does not address, and consequently, questions that we won't be addressing this morning, but next Lord's Day, we will be considering the fourth commandment in our catechism service from our 
Heidelberg Catechism, and we'll be looking at some of these questions in a bit more detail. However, what this psalm does do is it connects for us two very important themes. The themes of Sabbath and song. A song for the Sabbath. It connects these two important themes. Sabbath and song. Sabbath and worship. Now these are two themes that we have to a certain degree lost in our contemporary age. In the 1950s, when the NFL was considering when to broadcast their games, uh, they realized that Friday and Saturdays were already mostly taken by uh, high school and college football, and so they decided upon Sunday. And there are people at this time, voices at this time, that said, this is, this is not going to work. Sunday's already taken. It's the Christian Sabbath. It's a day of worship. And boy, have things changed. <laughs> Furthermore, there's a tendency to water down our song, water down what we do in worship, from the songs that we sing to the confessions that we recite to the preaching and teaching that we are under. There's a notion that an intentional liturgy is opposed to the vital working of the Spirit. However, if you think of our liturgy or an intentional liturgy as being a trellis and our faith as a vine, Without an intentional liturgy, our faith may grow, but it probably will be uh, somewhat messy and chaotic, like a vine growing without a trellis. And so an intentional liturgy, a biblical liturgy, a well-thought-out liturgy, a historically-rooted liturgy, enables our faith that's wrought by the Spirit of God to grow in an orderly manner. And so this morning, I'd like us to use this title, this title of Psalm 92, to guide our consideration of this psalm, a song for the Sabbath. So first, we're going to consider the connection between Sabbath and song, Sabbath and worship, and then secondarily, we'll consider what kind of song we are to sing on the Sabbath. So first, Sabbath and song, Sabbath and song. Now in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was, of course, a day of rest. This is explicit. Fourth commandment, we read that we are to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord your God. And the word Sabbath literally means rest. And so the Sabbath day was a day of rest for the Old Testament people of God. But we also know in the Old Testament that the Sabbath day was also to be a day whereby the people of God held a holy convocation a holy assembly. It was to be a day of worship uh, where their instruments were taken out, songs were sung, sacrifices were given. So even in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was both a day of worship as well as a day of rest. And when we come to the New Testament, we know that Jesus, by his resurrection, changes the Sabbath day from being the, on the seventh day of the week to being on the first day of the week. John, in Revelation, refers to the New Covenant Sabbath as the Lord's Day. And we see Jesus on that very first Lord's Day, that very first Resurrection Day, he sets this day apart by preaching, by breaking bread with his disciples, by blessing his disciples, and the apostles follow in his example in the book of Acts, as we see the Christian church gathering on the Lord's Day the first day of the week, to worship, 
to hear the word preached, uh, to break bread, to enjoy the communion of the saints. So both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the Sabbath day is a day not only for rest, but it's also a day for song. It's a day for worship. Boys and girls, Sunday is a holiday. It's truly a holy day. It's a day in which we take a break from our ordinary routines, rituals, activities, work, so that we can gather with the Lord's people. We can sing the Lord's song. We can hear the Lord's words. We can eat the Lord's food. It's a special day. It's a holiday. It's a festive day. Sabbath is a day for song. Now, I'd like to make one brief comment here on the reference that we see in the the first uh, few verses of Psalm 92 uh, to musical instruments. You'll notice that the psalmist here refers to a number of different musical instruments, the lute, the lyre, the harp, and you get the impression that there was a worship band of sorts singing Psalm 92 in the Old Covenant Sabbath. And we might wonder, well, why don't we have the lute, the harp, the lyre, the trumpet playing in our worship services? Well, in the Old Testament, instruments were very much associated with the sacrifices in the temple. For instance, if you read 1 Chronicles 29, when Hezekiah is renewing temple worship, he commands the harps, the trumpets, the lyres to play while the burnt offerings are being offered in the temple. And so uh, most of the instances in which we come across these instruments, these variety of instruments, sacrifices are being offered. In fact, that's what's happening here in Psalm 92. This song would have been sung over the, the giving of offerings. And so many theologians throughout the history of the church, not only in the Reformation, but even before the Reformation, individuals such as Thomas Aquinas, have recognized this very close identity between these variety of instruments in the Old Testament and the offering of sacrifices. In fact, these theologians have noticed an inseparable connection between these instruments and the offering of sacrifices. So much so that when Christ came and fulfilled the Old Testament animal sacrifices, he also fulfilled and set aside to a certain degree these variety of instruments. Which is why in the New Testament we see the apostles saying that the congregation's voice is to be the main instrument and we don't have references to the the harp, the lyre, and the trumpet in the New Testament. Now this led many of the reformers actually to try to get rid of the organ and musical instruments during the time of the Reformation. Now we as a reformed church, uh, we don't think that instruments in themselves are inappropriate for worship um, or that we can't use secondary instruments, but this point does teach us that when we gather together for corporate worship, the congregation's voice is to be the main instrument, and any secondary instrument or instruments that we have are to accompany the congregation and serve the congregation and not be the focal point. And so there's a certain level of simplicity to New Covenant song, New Covenant worship, and And here we see uh, the shift from Old Covenant worship to New Covenant worship. And so the Sabbath, the Sabbath is a day for song. This is our ultimate priority for the Sabbath day. Worship. Worship. And this is something that we are to consider. Uh, We are to take seriously. The Sabbath is a day for the Lord's song. 
Now, what kind of song should we be singing on the Lord's Day? Well, this psalm instructs us in that matter. It is indeed a song. We learn what types of things we should be praising God for on his Sabbath day. And so first we see that we are to praise God for the mystery of his works. So look with me in in verse 5. In verse 5 we read, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. So here the psalmist is praising God for his manifold works. Now what are the works of God? Well, we know God's works in creation. We witness his works of creation every single day we awake. His creation which proclaims his power, his glory, his justice, his his grandeur. We know God's works in his providence as he continues to sustain, uphold, and govern this created universe. We know God in his works of redemption through scripture in the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice that the psalmist says right after this, he says, your thoughts are very deep. Whenever the psalmist thinks about the works of his God, he immediately follows that up with this proclamation that God's thoughts are very deep. This reminds us that we should never think that we can master God's word or we, should, or we can ever master God himself. We will never plumb the depths of the incomprehensible God in whom we serve. Or, to put it another way, there's always going to be an element of mystery to our knowledge of God. Uh, the great theologian Herman Bovink, in his uh, big theological tome says that mystery is the lifeblood of theology. This concept of mystery is so important as we pursue the knowledge of God. There are many things in scripture that we can know but yet still remain somewhat mysterious to us. Think about the Trinity. We know who God is. We know what the Trinity is. We know that God is is three distinct persons and one divine essence. But How exactly does this fit together in a clean, compartmentalized way? How how can God be both three and one in such a way that his threeness doesn't contradict his oneness and his oneness doesn't contradict his threeness? There's an element of mystery to the Trinity. Or the two natures of Christ. Christ is both human and divine, and yet these two natures are distinct but inseparable. Think about the Lord's Supper, one of our elements of worship. How is it that we who are on earth can have real communion, participation, and fellowship with the physical humanity of Christ in heaven through the simple eating of bread and drinking of wine. Calvin said, I'd rather experience it than understand it. There's an element of mystery. Now, this is not an excuse to not pursue the knowledge of God. Rather, it's a reminder that as we pursue the knowledge of God, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter says, We need to always keep in mind these words of the psalmist. Uh, Your thoughts, O Lord, are very deep. Boys and girls, you all, or you may have read a mystery book before, and when you read a mystery novel or book, generally speaking, in the beginning of the book, there's some unsolved case, a robbery or a crime scene, and you know some details about Uh, the crime, but you don't know who did it. You don't know how exactly it happened. 
there are things that are mysterious to you, and that's why you're intrigued to finish the book. You want to find out what happens. Well, this is sort of what it's like with God. We know who God is. We know what he is, but we can't always answer the how question. How does it all fit together? Because our God is an incomprehensible God. Now, in the book of Romans, Paul spends about eight chapters, from 321 all the way through chapter 11, explaining the doctrine of salvation. He explains the doctrine of salvation in terms of justification. He explains the doctrine of salvation in terms of sanctification. He explains the doctrine of salvation in terms of redemptive history. And at the end of Paul's deep consideration of this multifaceted doctrine of salvation, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? So Paul can think very, very deeply about the things of God and then follow that up that deep consideration of the things of God by saying that God still remains unsearchable, inscrutable, and no one, no one can fully know the mind of the Lord or be his counselor. Paul very much understood what God had previously spoken through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah when, when he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And beloved, we wouldn't want it any other way. If, we, if there was no mystery to our knowledge of God, that would mean that we can master God. We can master his word. That would mean that we are in one sense standing over God as his counselor. But yet God remains incomprehensible as we are finite creatures uh, seeking to know something, something of this accommodated revelation that he has given to us in his word. And so we are to praise God for the mystery, the mystery of his works. Well, what are these works? What are these works that we are to praise? I, I previously mentioned some of these works, but this psalm directs our attention to a number of these works in particular. So we are called to praise God for his works of providence. So if you look with me at verse 7, the psalmist says that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish. One aspect of God's providence is his common grace, his common benevolence, his common kindness that he displays not only towards Christians, but non-Christians, towards the so-called wicked. Here the psalmist says that due to God's common grace, he allows the wicked to sprout like grass and evildoers to flourish. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that God sends the rain both on the evil and on the righteous. That God allows the sun to rise on the just and on the unjust. We as, as Christians don't have any more right over God's common grace blessings than unbelievers, than the wicked. For us with ourselves, we are all beneficiaries of cultural, cultural products that come from the so-called wicked, come for, for, from those who are outside of the Christian church, things that we should give thanks to God for. 
If we think about the blessing that we have of living in this country, uh, we have it better than virtually any other society in human history. No one in this room has to worry about whether or not there's going to be bread on the table tonight, whether or not they're going to be killed when they walk out of these doors and, and go to their car. Uh, we don't have to, to fear gathering this morning. Uh, we have the freedom of, of religion. We enjoy wealth that previous generations, even kings and world leaders in previous generations couldn't have even fathomed. And many, most of our current political leaders are the so-called wicked. They're not Christians. We're to praise God for his common grace, his restraint upon human wickedness, him allowing the image of God, even in the wicked, to flourish to a certain extent, to produce things that benefit society at large. We're to praise God for his works of providence. In fact, in Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, we see that the first cultural innovators of Man, uh, human society came from the line of the seed of the serpent. The first farmers, builders of city, metallurgists, musicians were those who were outside of the covenant community. We should praise God for his common grace. This also means that God's threat of judgment has been stayed so that the church, we as the church, can be an evangelistic organism to those who are the wicked during this time in which God is exercising forbearance. So we are to praise God for his works of providence. We also are to praise God for his works of justice. So you'll see that the psalmist continues in verse 7. He says that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. Well, of course, God's patience will run out. Uh, and God does say that there is a final judgment coming. That though the wicked flourish, in part in this age, there is a time of reckoning, a time of final judgment. So the reason why we can hear and, and follow what we previously confessed or, or heard in the reading of the law in Romans 12, 19, where Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The reason why we can hear that, follow that, obey that, is because we know our God is just, and as verse 15 says, there is no unrighteousness in him. We can leave, you know, at any time that we are sinned against or severely wronged in this life, we, we are to entrust those wrongs to the wrath of God. That every sin will be punished, either at Calvary, if the person repents and believes, or on the last day. But every sin will be punished according to God's justice. And this is a comfort for us when we are uh, severely wronged. We know that God's justice will prevail over sin. But this... This teaching also can be emotionally difficult for us to grab hold of, especially when we know people, loved ones in our lives who are outside of Christ, who, who don't believe. And, and it's hard for us, hard for us to, to embrace how God can be most glorified through a judgment, through a final judgment. But again, there's a mystery here. Oh Lord, your, your thoughts are very deep and we are to trust 
that this is according to God's good and perfect will as a child trusts his or her parents when they don't understand. Again, there's a mystery to God's works of judgment. And lastly, we see that we are to praise God for his works of redemption. So you'll see in verses 10 through 15 that the psalmist is dwelling upon God's works of redemptive grace that he receives as a follower of Yahweh. So in verse 12, the psalmist says, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Now notice the contrast here. The wicked are like grass, while the righteous are like a strong cedar. Now throughout the Psalms, the wicked are oftentimes portrayed as grass. And the reason why they're portrayed as grass is because grass is very transient. Today it's alive, and tomorrow it's withered up in the sun. So the wicked are marked by a certain level of transience. Yes, they might flourish in this age, but if they don't repent and believe, they're going to perish. While the righteous, they are like a cedar. They're like a palm tree. They endure. There's a level of permanence to a tree. Uh, trees, of course, last for generations, centuries even. And so the wicked are transient, while the righteous are permanent. Uh, this is telling us that due to God's grace, his redemptive grace towards us, we know that even though we might endure trials and tribulations in this life, we have a hope in a future. We have the blessing of a new creation. We are like a tree that's going to be, uh, that's going, going to be standing throughout the ages, beyond this present evil age, into that age to come. In verse 13, the psalmist continues and says that the righteous, they are planted in the house of the Lord and they flourish in the courts of our God. Now this is a reference to the temple, the courts of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, the temple was a place where God's presence dwelt among his people. So this is a promise of God's gracious presence being among his people. We have the blessing of a personal, intimate relationship with our holy God, God who's seated on high. This is why we say in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven, our transcendent God has come near in the blood of Christ and is our intimate Father. However, notice the connection that the psalmist is making between the courts of the Lord and flourishing. Now the courts of the Lord, again, in the original context is a reference to the temple. But for us today, it's a reference to corporate worship, the Lord's Day, uh, the church. And the psalmist is connecting flourishing with the course of the Lord. And so this, this tells us that we flourish insofar as we, connect, we are connected to Christ's local church, the body of Christ here on earth. We flourish in the course of the Lord. We experience in a special way God's redemptive presence in the course of the Lord. One commentator says that we as cedars, we're like houseplants. Yes, we are palm trees. Yes, we are cedars. But we are trees planted in the house of the Lord. We're houseplants. We flourish within the body of Christ here in this age. And then lastly, the psalmist speaks in verse 14 about how the righteous, they will still bear fruit in old age and they're ever full of sap and green. We have the promise due to God's grace in our lives that we will bear fruit. Even unto old age, the Spirit's at work in our life, renewing us, changing us, molding us, sanctifying us. So as Paul can say in Ephesians 2.10, that we are indeed Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we will walk in. 
That's a promise that we can rest in. So congregation of Christ, let's be a people who love the Lord's day. Let's be a people who love the Lord's song. And let's be a people who praise God for the mystery of his works. Let us pray.